started a rally in March to commemorate the first anniversary of the oil train derailment there. My engineer is Patsy Kohlberg. I'm Barbara Bernstein. We're going to go out with some music by Jello Biafra. Thanks for listening. is always looking for ways people can work with us and support us. KBU has a wish list, and we'd love help getting some of those items donated. Some things on our list include a color printer, digital recorders, a pop-up canopy, dishwashing detergent, brooms and mops, or services like roofing, plumbing, and electrical work. Please contact station co-manager Delphine at del at kboo.org or go to kboo.fm slash wishlist for more information about supporting your favorite community radio station, KBOO Portland. Good morning. You are tuned in to KBOO in Portland, Oregon. And coming up at 1130, we have Voices for the Animals. They talk to Dr. Beirute Galdikas, the world's foremost expert on orangutans about the challenges and the great apes face trying to survive in a rapidly changing environment. Thanks, KBOO members, for your generous support. If you are not a current member, you can become one by going to kboo.fm and clicking on Donate. Next up, Disability Awareness looks at the issue of women with disabilities who become victims of violence by their caregivers. This program is made possible by KBOOM members and support from Chamber Music Northwest featuring the 2017 Summer Festival starting June 26. Oh, that's today. Starts today. Five weeks of music, over 30 concerts, more than 60 artists and ensembles, eight world premieres, two theatrical experiences, and a celebration of women composers that spans nine centuries. More information at cmnw.org. Today on Wings, Violence Against Women with Disabilities, and Activism Against That. There's a river of birds in migration, a nation of women with wings. Welcome to Wings, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world, produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. Welcome to Wings. I'm Jean Parker. The few statistics that are available indicate that if a woman has a physical or mental disability, her chances of experiencing abuse from an intimate partner are ten times higher than that of non-disabled women. The traditional definition of domestic violence usually involves abuse from an intimate partner. This includes a husband or boyfriend, someone with whom the victim is in a close, usually sexual, relationship. 
But for disabled women, this definition has been extended to include caregivers, people engaged to provide personal care or some other necessary support. Sometimes this care can include the most intimate of contact, such as during bathing, dressing, or assistance to use the toilet. There is little research on this aspect of domestic violence, but it is believed to be one of the most underreported crimes that exists. In today's program, we'll hear an historic interview I did in 1995 with Sharon Hickman, founding director of the Domestic Violence Initiative for Women with Disabilities in Denver, Colorado in the United States. But first, Jill Haig is the co-director of the Violence Against Women Research Group at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. Haig conducted the first-ever national study in the UK on disability and domestic violence. We will hear from Jill Haig about her findings in a speech given to the 4th Forensic Disabilities Conference in Melbourne, Australia, in July of 2010. Here is Jill Haig. The first bit of what we learn from the literature is gaps. There's gaps in policy, there's gaps in service development in regard to women with disabilities experiencing domestic violence. And then after you get the gaps, then you get the barriers. So then the barriers are things like the lack of accessible services, possibly the low take-up of um, domestic violence provision by disabled women who might not know about it because of it not being um, advertised in that way. Um, tiny numbers disclosing to disability organizations because thinking that they, those organizations don't deal with abuse issues. Um, and absence of awareness campaigns. We do know that there are issues of increased power and control, if you like, over disabled women. Um, that's a feature often of the domestic violence experience, especially if they're vulnerable and frail. Then issues of power and control that are already there are multiplied by the abuse. And we do know that women with disabilities have a greater need for services, but that is accompanied by extremely poor provision. So it's a really distressing situation, and it's not just in one place or, or just an anomaly. It's illustrated time and time again in whatever research is done in country after country after country. All the research evidence, insofar as there is very much, from across the world shows that disabled women facing intimate abuse are neglected and overlooked. The aims of our study, very quickly, were to further understanding of the needs of disabled women experiencing domestic violence, to look at the scope of existing provision, to look at gaps, and to come up with examples of good practice and recommendations. I'm going to use women's words um, a bit now as I go through um, in an attempt really to raise disabled women's voices, those voices that are often muted. Some of the quotes are distressing, of course. First then, what about, from our research, what about disabled women's experiences of domestic violence and abuse, often happening in the most intimate of personal settings, and perhaps being committed by someone you're totally dependent on or might even be your lover, husband, partner. 
Well, in our research, um, women reported very varied and multiple forms of abuse and sometimes multiple abusers. Some women talked about pervasive non-stop abuse which had gone on almost their whole adult lives, almost without stop. Almost always impairment seeming to be used as part of the abuse. In 100% of cases, the women felt that the being disabled had made the abuse worse. Now, I think I should perhaps have said that um, here we're not talking about all all um, relationships where um, the, the, the partner may be the carer and may be looking after the, his, his wife or partner or whatever. Obviously, in most of those instances, things probably work out fine. We're only talking about a minority of cases, probably. Um, and it also probably, we often say that everybody recognises that being a carer, sometimes if it's a very demanding um, personal situation you're in, can be stressful, can be exhausting, and um, carers do get exhausted and stressed and, and so on and sometimes behave in ways they shouldn't do. But I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about domestic abuse of a different order being experienced by women who are sometimes at their most vulnerable. Two particular features we found in our research was, first of all, what seemed to be an increased level of very degrading emotional abuse, very degrading humiliation and belittling, um, often with the, the woman's impairment being used as part of this belittling emotional um, humiliation. And, sadly, high levels of often extreme sexual violence, which seem to be higher. We don't have very robust evidence on this, but seem to be higher than um, the sexual abuse and violence experienced by non-disabled women. Many of our interviewees then spoke about being sexually violated, um, this included repeated rape in some cases, forced sex while being pinned down, demands for sex in return for the provision of care. You have to give me sex if you want me to give you your medications. Or another woman um, talked about hor horrible things like, um, you have to give me sex if you want me to buy you sanitary protection. But doing, doing this research... Women started to talk to us about in these incredibly intimate and, and deep and painful issues, which are usually hidden. Um, sometimes with more than one perpetrator, with sexual abuse deliberately being carried out by other relatives as well. One woman said, it was sex all the time, twice a day. He would hold me down with his hand over my mouth always... And I hated it. I hated it. And he said, because I was deaf, I deserved it. In particular accounts, actually, of women possibly quite frail being held down. Just think about it for a moment. It's really, really distressing. 
Our research made us begin to question prevailing definitions of domestic violence and I think together with the disability movement it will be good to try and expand our understandings. We need to perhaps um, think of issues of increased power and control, we need to think of the abuse perhaps having different dimensions for women with disabilities, different patterns of relationships and so on. And this um, one woman said this, she was talking about what was happening to her and then she said he hits her. But actually, domestic abuse is far more than that. It's big. It's so big for disabled people. And I think it's uncomfortable for non-disabled people to face up to. When the abuser is the carer, so this is where the main carer is the, the abuser, possibly a partner, um, we identified particular issues of neglect, isolation, and intense vulnerability. Um, distressing um, stories. This was um, the first woman is a woman who couldn't move by herself. And he said, at night times he'd shut the door on me so I couldn't call him for anything so he wouldn't hear me if I wanted to, like, use the toilet or anything. So there she'd be, stuck. And um, this, um, the second woman, who was a woman with limited mobility, who certainly couldn't get up if she fell. Once I fell on the floor with my dinner, and he said, that's where you eat your dinner, that's where you belong. Now just imagine how degrading these sorts of things are. When the abuser is the carer, then, neglect, isolation, intense vulnerability. Sometimes... Um, the abusers would use or take the special adaptations or furniture that the woman had. For example, a special comfortable bed or chair, and he would take it instead of letting her have it. Um, this um, woman said, I had a motability car, an, an, an adapted car, and he would take it and disappear for days on end with it, leaving me stranded in the house, unable to get the shopping, etc., but you don't say anything as a disabled woman. I felt so ashamed that this was happening, so I didn't tell anyone, I didn't ask anyone for help, I'd just be stranded while he was gone off with her car. This has come up time and time again um, in our research and I think in the Victoria research of um, feeling guilty, feeling that you need to keep quiet, not wanting people perhaps to think even worse of you than you think they might already because you're disabled and you don't want to say that you're also experiencing domestic abuse and all the stigmatization that might go with that. Intense vulnerability. This um, was a strong, very humorous young woman with a child and she had left and she'd formed a really good new life. And she said, one time he actually took the battery out of this wheelchair I'm in now. He just unplugged it so I couldn't move, couldn't charge it. Or sometimes, and this is a good one, and she laughed and made a joke, he'd quickly move my wheelchair to one side just as I was shifting myself into it. And she made a joke of it, and she was very sardonic. But can you imagine the reality of that situation? Another woman, he'd make me wait for help and he'd tut a lot and say, oh God, not again, oh let's get it over and done with, and shove me about sometimes and push me hard like in the bathroom when I was washing. That's already a very vulnerable time when you're washing, isn't it? 
also not being believed and meant to be grateful. The abuser being seen as a wonderful person for putting up with her and no one believing that he could be abusing her. This is a very articulate um, woman with visual impairment. Um, People pity him because he is taking care of you and he's so noble. So people are reluctant to criticize this saint or to think he could do these terrible things. And there's a sort of, I think there's an idea that people don't easily see a disabled woman as a wife, a partner, and mother, as an ordinary sexual person like anyone else. So I think for some people it's hard to think, well, this might be a woman who's being sexually or physically abused by her partner because disabled women don't have sex, do they? She said with a big smile. This was a woman with, with um, uh, cerebellar ataxia. Um, because they become your carer and they make you believe you need them and they do everything and I'm making life so much easier for you. And, you know, I thought it was wonderful because nobody had taken care of me in that way before. No one. But then he gradually took over. And a lot of it was about being disabled. And then he always made a thing, for example, about carrying me out to the car instead of me going in my chair, just so people would see and to emphasize it more. The whole issue about trying to respond to the, abo- uh, the abuse by being ashamed and, and um, self-blaming. And also for some of the women that we talked with who had multiple support needs, being terrified of the residential system and fe- fi- saying that a life of abuse was better than a life in the care agencies. So having to hide it all the time from people, from the authorities... That was Jill Haig speaking at the 4th Forensic Disabilities Conference in Melbourne, Australia, in July of 2010. Way back in 1985, the first program in the United States to provide services specifically to disabled women who were experiencing domestic abuse was founded. It was started as a response to the large number of disabled women who were seeking services at independent living centers and reporting abuse at home. Local social worker and disability rights activist Sharon Hickman and her colleagues identified domestic violence as a huge and unacknowledged problem within the disability community. In this 1995 interview recorded for Disability Radio Worldwide, Hickman discussed founding the Domestic Violence Initiative for Women with Disabilities and what the barriers are for disabled women who need help. We at DVI are disabled women working on behalf of disabled women and there was no other project like that in Colorado. We were founded in 1985 as a result of my having to coordinate a support group for women with disabilities in the Denver area. And in doing that, um, the main issue that kept coming up time and time again was the abuse that they were experiencing at home, the abuse that they were experiencing at the hands of their caregivers, and the abuse that they were experiencing in institutions. They began talking about it in public. Not surprisingly, this news was not welcomed by the leaders of the disability rights movement, who were mostly male at that time. The women's movement was also unreceptive. Nobody had publicly talked about these things before, so kind of collectively it evolved out of a a met need 
And so we created that safe space to talk about those issues. And out of that grew uh, my talking with other people in the community. I was involved on the board of directors for the very first independent living center in Denver. And I was also involved as a volunteer with the Colorado Domestic Violence Coalition. So you were bringing together both the issues of disability and domestic violence? And I kind of did that unknowingly. Um, and as I proceeded to be a volunteer, then they became aware that, oh my goodness, there are people who have disabilities who are not giving services after shelters because they're not accessible. And lucky for me, um, that dialogue was quickly acted upon. And we wrote grants and got funded to begin to do crisis calls um, to women who were experiencing domestic violence. And the thing that made us unique is that we were women with disabilities who had gone through domestic violence experiences, so our uh, support was called peer support as opposed to professional victims' assistance. Although this interview was recorded 15 years ago, things for disabled abuse victims have remained largely unchanged. What kind of things were disabled women telling you about their abuse situations that were perhaps different or unique because they have disabilities? Well, I remember the first couple cases were women who looked to their husband as caregiver, caregivers. And that meant that they relied on the husband to cook a meal, feed them perhaps, get them in and out of bed, or just do any kinds of chores for them that they couldn't do for themselves that you require in daily living. And they were telling uh, me how this caregiver had the meanness to withhold basic things like food, water, medication, mobility, telephone. Um, they would dump them out of their wheelchairs and leave them in bed for long periods of time if they didn't, quote, behave. So um, that was such a dramatic uh, story that I just couldn't let that fall by the wayside. And I had to, uh, I mean, I was compelled to uh, create a project that could be a voice for this issue because uh, nobody anywhere was talking about this. Combining the issues of disability and domestic violence proved difficult. Much of DVI's work focused on educating women's shelters staff and volunteers who were totally ignorant about disability and violence. Shelters routinely said no to women with disabilities based on physical inaccessibility of the shelter location, fear of disability and prejudice. Actually, I think it's maybe a little bit easier to build a ramp into a building and have physical access than it, because you can physically do that. So it's memory available and you can build that. But attitudinal barriers are much more, much more difficult to work with and they require lots of education, lots of awareness, and lots of people going out into the community saying, I'm basically just like you, only I need this and this and this. Staff believe disabled women were unable to do chores and therefore could not contribute to the communal work expectation of most women shelters. The experiences of some disabled women were simply not believed by counselors. 
Shelters were reluctant to allow women to have personal care attendants come and provide necessary services like bathing, bladder and bowel care. From the start, DVI was opposed to having its own shelters, as later programs did, preferring to educate the staff of existing shelters so that disabled women would be integrated into existing services. Our goal is to really mainstream. We don't want to build a steakhouse just for women with disabilities. We don't want a courthouse that just listens to cases with people who have disabilities. We want the community and the public to accept us as a citizen and thereby mainstream and use the already existing services and systems. Can you give some examples of some things that would be considered abuse in working with women who have disabilities that service providers or advocates working with women who don't have disabilities or haven't identified as having disabilities wouldn't even think of? What came to my mind when you first said that is um, people need to realize that disabilities come in all sizes and shapes and forms. Some of them are apparent and some of them are hidden. And the women that we work with, uh, also a high percentage of those women become permanently disabled as a result of the violence. Uh, a lot of head injuries, a lot of emotional difficulties, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder kinds of things. So when these women go into the doctor to be treated, he's likely to give them medicines to combat depression or medicines to combat psychosis to calm them down. Hickman says these cases are complex, with a variety of added components that are specific to women who have disabilities. If the abuser has taken or destroyed her wheelchair, oxygen, or other devices, for example, these must somehow be replaced. If the abuser was her caregiver, those services must be replaced by a home health agency. Someone needs to pay for that. If the woman becomes disabled as a result of the abuse, she might have to receive medical care or mobility devices for the rest of her life. She says the complications are endless. So assuming that you're talking right now to women who are involved in getting women out of domestic abuse, what are some of those questions to determine if there is a disability or power dynamic that they really need to know about in order to be effective in assisting that woman? Well, that's a bit of a puzzle because women who are in domestic violence situations tend to minimize and deny that, particularly until they're ready to take steps to leave the situation. You have a lot of denial and a lot of minimizing. And so when they call in crisis, um, you have to listen very closely and you have to read between the lines to pick up things. Um, I'm talking about when a person will call the police or some social service agency don't um, liable to have a person who is very lacking in sensitivity and awareness who will miss the whole thing. So she thinks that she's got really no problem and nothing to worry about. So by the time they call us, they're usually pretty much in dangerous situations. Our intake questions are the basic questions. Who are you? What is your situation? Where do you come from? Um, how do you plan to leave? What's your income? What's your, you know, do you have children? Are you taking medications? Can you tell us about your disability? 
but that that still doesn't get to the story that they have to tell and that's something that women don't readily tell this story until they feel safe. Hickman explained that when a disability is part of the equation, the cycle of violence is similar to the ordinary pattern of abuse, with one big exception. By the time a disabled woman calls for help, the lethality of her situation is much higher than it would be if she was non-disabled. That means the stakes are higher for the woman seeking help from a shelter or hotline, and that if she is denied help, her chances of being killed are greater than they would be if she was non-disabled. Hickman says the reason for this is that disabled women have less social supports in general and therefore have less ability to escape. Luckily, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA as we call it, came along to give this a boost. The ADA says you have to make services accessible because if you don't, you're liable to lawsuits. So thank goodness that that came on the tail of our work because that really gives us wings to go in and talk about these issues because directors of shelters are primarily now businesswomen and uh, domestic violence is big business now and their boards of directors have turned from grassroots kind of people to more corporate people who can access money. And sometimes they have a different way of doing things and their grassroots kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Do you think they're meeting the expectations? Well, I think that most of them are. And we have reconvened what we call the Access Coalition. And that is uh, a meeting to build coalition with all of the service providers around these issues, both disability issues and domestic violence issues. And I really think that that gives people a place and a chance to talk about things because they're scared to talk about disability issues. They're afraid that they might say or do the wrong thing. So we provide forums to have these discussions. We also put on conferences and trainings to talk about these issues. So we have a, a, a constant presence in the community. Sure, uh, things could be better. Staff turnover is really high in the system. Volunteer turnover is really high. So you have to keep going out and re-educating over and over again. Our interview was with Sharon Hickman, founding director of the Domestic Violence Initiative for Women with Disabilities. DVI celebrated its 25th anniversary in October 2010. They can be reached through their website at www.dviforwomen.org. That's www.dviforwomen.org. For Wings and Disability Radio Worldwide Archives, I'm Jean Parker. The women you just heard have retired, but their institutions and issues live on. Jill Haig's group is now called the Center for Gender and Violence Research at the University of Bristol. The Domestic Violence Initiative for Women with Disabilities still work from Denver, Colorado, USA. To hear this program again, email wings at wings.org. The speech by Jill Haig is from a program by Rachel O'Connell for Australia's Women on the Line, womenontheline.org.au. Special thanks to Suzette Cullen and to Genevieve Vaughn, author of 36 Steps to a Gift Economy. 
The Wings Sound logo is from Libana's album A Circle is Cast. I'm Frida Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering Service. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Willamette River Festival and Movie in the Park Sunday, July 30th from 1 to 10 p.m. at the Cathedral Park Waterfront in Portland.